Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Got a really fun and interesting program for you today. Our production team working so hard on your behalf as they do each and every day. And it's our pleasure to be with you wherever you're listening on the app, the LAist app, so you can tune in worldwide as you travel or even move to another location. And of course, through our terrestrial transmitters all the way from uh, the far Coachella Valley to the north of Santa Barbara County. Coming up a little bit later, we're going to be talking about Los Angeles City uh, Measure HLA. Uh, it's uh, somewhat controversial because of, of what um, the uh, city's uh, chief analyst says is the price tag for the building out of the mobility plant in the city of L.A. The proponents of HLA say it's wildly inflated and very misleading. We'll talk about what's involved in HLA with the implementation of bike lanes, more um, crosswalks, um, protected bus lanes, and things that are part of HLA. But we begin with the announcement from the department store chain Macy's yesterday that it's going to be closing around 150 stores. Included in the closures is that flagship historic landmark building on Union Square in San Francisco that Macy's has had for close to 100 years, one that even Angelinos will shop at in visiting San Francisco on vacations, but that store, like so many of the other Macy's, finding itself with changing shopping patterns and other things going on in retail, no longer of value to the chain. So we don't know which other Macy's stores are going to be closed. They haven't announced a full list of it. We don't know because you know, many of the Macy's in Southern California are in historic locations. There's one not far from our studios on South Lake in Pasadena that's in a historic uh, mid-century building that I'm sure is going to uh, um, be our argued should be protected whether Macy's closes or not. Uh, joining us to talk about what's happening with Macy's and why this is occurring is New York Times business reporter covering retail, Jordan Holman. Jordan, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So what's happening at Macy's that's leading to their decision to close, uh, what is it, almost a third of their stores? Yes. So over the past few years, Macy's has really been trying to figure out what size it needs to be at. You know, going into the pandemic, they have more than 700 stores. And at the end of 2026, it will be around half of that. And that is just part of 
larger trends of people shopping more online, not wanting to go into a mall, but maybe shop at a strip center. And Macy's has really struggled with figuring out how to bring people back to their stores or to their websites. And this is just part of a larger decision to try to uh, get a good strategy. Well, I wonder how much is chicken and egg here, Jordan, because one of the complaints anecdotally I hear about Macy's is it's very hard to find someone to help you and um, that the stock isn't particularly well arranged. It's it's not the merchandising is not as it used to be in the chain. But of course, the, the company doesn't have uh, the money behind it to do what it used to do with more full service retail because there aren't as many customers. So I I wonder, you know, how what are the thoughts from analysts about how Macy's can survive this when it 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 looks like a death spiral? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a complaint I hear about a lot. You go in there, it feels like clothes are all over the place. You can't find anyone. And that's a huge frustration. So what Macy's executives have said is that with these store closures and selling the property um, from the stores, they would have more money to then reinvest in the stores that do remain. That means increasing headcount, um, staffing, sex- important sections like shoe departments, the fitting rooms that hopefully make people feel better about shopping in there and will translate into sales. Analysts so far um, from the analysts I've spoken to have felt good about this plan. They say it makes sense, but they also caution that Macy's has had a lot of turnaround plans in the past few years, and they're really good at making promises. It doesn't always turn into delivery. Just seems like there's such a squeeze between the higher end department stores, you know, places like Nordstrom, which has a very loyal clientele. And then you've got fast fashion brands, uh, which become popular with younger shoppers and, and online retail, of course. It's sort of like, well, who is Macy's audience then? Yeah, Macy's exists in this space called the messy middle that a lot of people in retail talk about. That is like, in some ways, it's great. It's for everyone. It's for the middle class. But then because it's for everyone, it doesn't have a distinct reason for being, people would argue. And so Macy's is saying, we want to elevate this shopping experience. We want to make sure that the mannequins look great and you get this top tier service. But that doesn't necessarily mean at higher prices. And so that's what they're really trying to drill into. Macy's new CEO, Tony Spring, he was a longtime CEO of Bloomingdale's, which Macy's Inc. also owns. So he's bringing that luxury sensibility into this new stage that they want to put Macy's in. And hopefully that will help uh, sharpen their perspective of like why you would go to a Macy's over a Nordstrom over shopping on SGN. Yeah, it's got to be a challenge, though, because when you go to a Nordstrom and you look at the prices, you realize part of what's baked in is the customer service is they've you know, they've got more staffing, more people to help you to explain the product. And and so then when you look at the price, you, you kind of get that if Macy's is going to have a higher level of customer service, but wants to keep its prices lower. That's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, where does Bloomingdale's factor into this? Macy's owns Bloomingdale's. They said they're going to expand. Are are any of the Macy's locations that might be closed thought of as potential Bloomingdale's uh, locations? Macy's hasn't um, been clear about exactly what it's going to do with those Macy's locations. If it will translate into Bloomingdale's right now, they're really talking about uh, monetizing those assets. But so for Bloomingdale's, um, they plan on 
opening the smaller bloomies that we've been seeing opening. So not the huge full-scale uh, department stores, because once again, what we've talked about, that model is really challenged right now. So as it relates to opening more Bloomingdale's, they want the ones that kind of exist in the strip centers, easy to get in and out, um, easier to just walk around. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, hopefully that will translate to higher sales. So it's not just an announcement of Macy's closing stores. They also have been really trying to be clear to Wall Street that they are opening stores, but just the right type of stores. Jordan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing your reporting expertise on this major story affecting retail coast to coast. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. As Jordan Holman, business reporter, covers retail for the New York Times. Also with us is Claire Debriere, who is a former chief operating officer at the Ratkovich Company, an L.A.-based development company, also former executive vice president at Skanska Commercial Development, an expert in adaptive reuse. Because one of the first questions I had, if we're going to see significant closures of Macy's locations in Southern California, and it's likely we will, just give given the quantity of stores that are slated for closure, what can be done with those facilities? We have a tremendous housing shortage. Are uh, retail department stores locations that can, uh, at at a uh, reasonable price, be reused for housing? What about other retailers going in? Uh, Claire, thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us. With these purpose-built locations, built to be multi-floor department stores, is it hard to convert them to something else? Good morning, Larry. Um, you know, it is. Um, it, it is hard to convert them to something else. It doesn't mean that it's not doable. Um, we have a great example here in L.A., in West L.A., that Hudson Pacific did um, with the former Westside Pavilion. And they converted that to uh, an office used for Google that UCLA has since acquired and, and taken over. Um, those types of buildings can be used for office. They can be used for hospital space. They can be used for university space. They can be used for museums. And, and I think particularly when you're looking at ones like the, the historic building in Pasadena that we were talking about, um, that, that would be a fantastic residential site. Um, it, it, the, the functionality of those floor plates with the high ceilings is actually a benefit. Mm. Um, but you'd have to do a lot of cutting in light wells, creating indoor outdoor spaces, hanging balconies, things like that. If you want to make it really useful for, you know, frankly, for an office or for, um, a residential use. I, I understand that it's actually easier to adapt older office buildings, for example, for residential use than, than the ones that came along, you know, from the late 60s on uh, with the, you know, the floor plans that they have. And I wonder for, for department stores, are they more like the older office buildings or more with the challenges like the newer ones? Well, the, the nice thing about these department stores is there's only three or four stories. So unlike trying to convert you know, a, a 1972 office tower that's 20 plus stories that has a huge floor plate that you're trying to cut a light well into where you'll end up having no light, you know, maybe four or five floors down. Um, with these buildings, you can actually, it's, it's not, it's pretty cost efficient to be able to create light wells um, in those buildings because you're not going very far. The other benefit that they have is they have tremendous parking. And um, 
being able to not have to build parking when you're trying to develop any other use, I mean, literally any other use, um, that ends up creating uh, a lot of sort of inherent value in those properties as well. We're talking with Claire DeBrerere, who is a former chief operating officer at Ratkovich Company, an L.A.-based developer, and she has extensive experience in private adaptive reuse and master plans. Uh, she spent the uh, first 26 years of her career on adaptive reuse. I raise this issue because of Macy's announcement yesterday that 150-some stores across the country are being closed by the department store chain because of underperformance performance. And I just want to clarify, because I know it's so easy, we listen to the radio sometimes with one ear. They have not announced which stores are going to be closing. We mentioned the San Francisco historic, I think it was 1929 building, if I'm not mistaken. I've, I've shopped there many times, right on Union Square, a beautiful historic building. That is closing. That had been previously reported. Um, we don't know in Southern California which, if any, locations. I brought up the passage one just because it's a beautiful building in a prime location that if if it was to be closed um, what would you do with a location like that or some of the others that are in the the more conventional shopping centers as opposed to street front like the Macy's in Pasadena if you have any questions we're at 866 893 5722 866-893-5722, or you can email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please uh, include your location and first name. With the former Westside Pavilion, Claire, um, that was adapted for offices before the office market cratered uh, with the pandemic. It, do you think that with some of these, they would look at officers or would they have to look at residential or, or repurposing for different types of retail uses? I really think it depends on the building and on the neighborhood and where it's located. Um, there are some, there the, the death of office, I think has been highly exaggerated because I do think that people will still need office space and it's going to be the best quality office space that people can find. And if you go and look at what um, Hudson Pacific developed in that West Side Pavilion space, that is incredible office space. And that's one of the reasons that Google, you know, jumped on it. And that when they decided that they weren't going to take it, that UCLA jumped on it because it's, it's absolutely perfect space. It's indoor outdoor space. It's highly sustainable, has easy parking, great access to transit. And so when you look at the some of these buildings that have attributes like that, those could very well be good office buildings. Um, it's probably not going to be your number one choice, but but I think that some of those will absolutely be converted to office buildings and multi-tenant office buildings um, and creating communities you know, of office buildings where, again, you don't have to build the parking because the parking's already there. Um, and a lot of these buildings... Um, like the one in San Francisco has great access to transit as well. Yeah. Um, but that's probably more, uh, it, I mean, I agree that building is beautiful. I think that would be a great residential um, conversion opportunity. Yeah. Um, as would I think the Pasadena building. That would be a great residential opportunity. Oh, so many people um, would want to live there. And, you know, your point right? about desirable office space as opposed to just generic office space makes a lot of sense because you know, I feel very fortunate in my career. I've never had to work in a high-rise, which 
I would hate because the idea that it takes you minutes to get in and out of the building just because of elevators and, and all, it, right. it, it's a hassle. And there are people who have to work in high rises, not not an ideal location. There are views, of course, but but there are practical limitations from that. And so I see why you're saying, like the old West Side Pavilion or other places, provides a kind of work environment that's going to be a lot better than having to, to go up an elevator in a high rise. Um, are they going to be specific types of jobs that you think are going to be uh, the best fit for these conversions? Well, you know, when you're talking about Southern California, we really focus on media, entertainment, technology, design, because those are the big drivers of our economy. However, when you look at some of these big law firms and big accounting firms and big banks, they are now all competing really, really um uh, strongly for the best possible candidates of this of this upcoming generation. Those candidates of this upcoming generation all want to work in space that looks like, you know, the Google space or the Apple space. They want to work in space that has access to air, access to nature, that has a strong biophilic um, environment. And I think when you when you're focused on just that media, entertainment, technology, design tenants you sort of lose the opportunity to reach out to some of these larger tenants that have historically been in those classic high rises. Now, they might not be the ones who would be most willing to pay the higher rents that would be associated with developing um, the kind of office space, the, the kind of office space that we're talking about with these conversions. Um, but I think to just say it's just going to be that that media entertainment technology sector is probably limiting yourself. All right. Claire, thank you very much. Learned a lot. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon because we'll have concrete examples and we'll come back to you to ask your expertise on some of the specific projects if uh, if that doesn't end up being a conflict of interest for you. Uh, Claire (laughs) Debrera joining us on AirTalk, a former COO of the Ratkovich Company, a major Los Angeles-based developer and former executive VP at Skanska Commercial Development. That's Claire Uh, Coming up on Air Talk, we're going to turn our attention, uh, speaking of uh, department stores, to a local mall, the Delamo Fashion Center in Torrance. It's imposing a new policy limiting minors' access to the mall if they're unaccompanied. We'll talk about it, and I want to hear your thoughts about it. I also want to hear if if during your uh, formative years you were banned from a place because of things that teens uh, or young adults were doing there. I'd be interested to hear. I, my friends and I were actually banned from a church parking lot. I'll tell you that story when we come back. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. Back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We have breaking news. Mitch McConnell says he'll step down as Senate Republican leader in November. The 82-year-old from Kentucky is the longest-serving Senate leader in history. Uh, he's set to make the announcement, according to the Associated Press, on the Senate floor Later today, the AP says it obtained his prepared remarks in which he says one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. McConnell says he plans to serve out the remainder of his Senate term, which ends in January 2027, quote, albeit from a different seat in the chamber. Again, the Associated Press reporting from uh, prepared remarks they say it obtained from uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell that he will step down from his Senate leadership position, not from the Senate itself, but from his Senate leadership position in November. Well, we were just talking about Macy's announcement that it'll close approximately 150 of its locations across the country and what that means for uh, those stores that are left vacant. Meanwhile, here in Southern California, the Delamo Fashion Center in Torrance has been a little too popular, at least with one segment of uh, those visiting the mall. That is unaccompanied minors. They've had a series of fights which have led to police coming out. Some of the fights have have lasted a considerable period of time, and the management of the mall says, enough. We are going to set limits on when unaccompanied minors can come into the mall. Joining a senior writer at the Los Angeles Times, Doug Smith. Doug, good morning. Good morning, Larry. So give us a little more background on, you know, what's been happening at the mall that finally led the management to to take this step. This relates to two um, uh, significant events that occurred last year that have been variously described as uh, flash mobs or brawls. Uh, and I, I think they have elements of both. Uh, the first in August uh, began as a fight, uh, a report of juveniles fighting. Uh, the police responded and they never determined how many uh, juveniles were actually fighting, but they said uh, estimated a thousand were watching, uh, which uh, you, you can imagine is um, uh, quite a spectacular scene. Uh, they. The numbers were such that they called out other law enforcement air, uh, uh, agencies to help disperse the uh, what was essentially a mob. Then uh, the, something similar occurred at the end of the year between Christmas and New Year when uh, an, another fight uh, broke out. And uh, by the uh, the fight broke out about one o'clock in the afternoon, and by four, the police were reporting that there were large groups of uh, what they described as disruptive juveniles popping up at different parts of the mall. So again, they called out uh, uh, several uh, law enforcement agencies and they actually formed a skirmish line to disperse the, this uh, this mob of, of juveniles. 
uh, and eventually made uh, uh, several arrests, four or five arrests, and uh, there were a couple of minor injuries, including a police officer. Mm. Uh, and so that's the that's the backdrop to what the owner of the Lamo Fashion Center uh, announced last week. I'd love to hear from listeners. If you shop at Del Amo, what do you think of that? Um, understandably, management would see uh, fights of that scale and that duration having a potential chilling effect on shoppers coming to the mall because of concerns about getting caught up in that. I'd like to hear what you think about it. Let me just quickly lay out that the policy is that from 3 o'clock on until closing time on Friday and Saturday, uh, from mid-afternoon, 3 o'clock, until closing time on Friday and Saturday, uh, anyone under the age of 18 must be accompanied by a parent or an adult 21 uh, years of age or older, and any uh, adult who is escorting minors on the property after 3 o'clock on Friday and Saturday can do so for no more than four of them per that, that individual. Doug, when does this go into effect? Um, I believe it's March 1st. Oh, so really soon. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. And, and there's, there's one, one uh, uh, interesting addition to that is covering employees because they have underage employees there. Oh yeah. And they're, they're allowed to be in the mall uh, while they're working, but once their shift ends, then they become just like any other juvenile there and they either have to have adult supervision or leave. All right. Um, and uh, Doug, I don't know, because this was just announced. Have we heard much in the way of response from the community and from shoppers to this? Or is it just too soon to kind of get a sense of what people are saying? Uh, it, it, it hasn't. None has come to my attention at this point. All right. We're talking with Doug Smith, senior writer at the Los Angeles Times, who's written about what Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance has just announced, that unaccompanied minors will be barred from the property two days of the week, Friday and Saturday from 3 o'clock on. They can be there earlier in the day by themselves without an, an adult with them. Uh, but from 3 o'clock to closing Friday and Saturday, they must have an adult with them. And the adult has to be in their physical presence. You can't just have a parent who says, okay, go do your thing to the minors, and they separate in the mall. According to the policy, the parent has to be in the same physical location, or, or the adult guardian has to be in the same physical location Location as uh, the minors uh, who they are accompanying. So what do you think of this? I'm also interested in hearing about if if when you were growing up, you were banned from a particular location or required to have a, a parent with you. I mentioned, you know, when I was a kid, a large group of us kids would play sports in uh, the asphalt parking lot of a church that was at the end of our block. And, you know, there'd be a large group of us sometimes. We'd be making a lot of noise. There were apartments around and, and the church management, they were very nice. They finally said, you can't do this anymore because first, it's too dangerous on the asphalt. And secondly, you guys make so much noise that it's disturbing the nearby residents. And so we went away for a little bit. And then we came back, of course, started playing again and waited for them to complain um, about it. But uh, I suspect I'm not the only one with my group of friends who were, were found to be, um, you know, not the not the uh, best group to be hanging out. 866-893-5722. Danielle in Pasadena. Uh, when did you find yourself kicked out of an area as a kid? So I, uh, in my formative years, an underage 
years, uh, found myself kicked out of a bowling alley for bringing my own alcohol. Ah, uh, that'll do it. Uh, me, <laughs> yeah, right? Me and my group of friends, uh, we thought we were geniuses. We filled up our Slurpee cups at 7-Eleven. We popped them, you know, whatever our favorite beverage right on top. And uh, our friend just spilled the whole, oh, whole no. Slurpee in the middle of the alley. and Ruined it <laughs> for everyone. We were... Well, we were caught red slurpy handed. So, uh, where did this? In our adult. Where did this happen? What part of the country? So this was in the Chicagoland area, Little Brook Lane. And how long? How long was there a, a longer term ban than just the ejection? I mean, the old the owner came over and told us to leave and never came come back. So I think that uh, left a mark, and we. We obeyed. And you never went back to the bowling alley. I love it. Thank you, Danielle. 866-893-5722. Remy in downtown Los Angeles said parents aren't doing their job. It takes a village to raise kids. Now it's time for the village to impose some rules. And uh, Franco in Pasadena says it's important for young people to have boundaries. Their parents aren't doing the job at home. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We reached out to the owner of the mall, which which owns malls all across the country, Simon Property Group. They have not responded to our request. Doug Smith, one of the things I was wondering is, you know, for a staffing um, thing at the mall, if they're going to have to hire additional people because they've been relying on the police to come out and respond to the fights at the mall, but to keep on Friday and Saturday an enforcement presence there, I just I just wonder what that's going to involve. I, I wish that Simon had responded to us as well. I I would assume uh, that if they're going to really enforce it, they're going to have to add additional security. Hope, uh, perhaps they're hoping that uh, that just the signs outside the mall will uh, do the trick. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have have to see. And that, you know, obviously, if there are unaccompanied minors there after three on Friday or Saturday, they're going to get a lot of looks up and down by the other shoppers. They're like, what are you doing there by yourself? If they if they look like they're under 18, 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And Doug, I haven't heard about any other malls or shopping areas that have done this. But, you know, I I wonder if this is going to be something, uh, if they've had less publicized problems at those malls, um, where they might look to follow this. Maybe they'll look to see how it plays out at Del Amo. It could be. I mean, there there have been reports, media reports of similar events occurring, especially last August in conjunction with um, a, a, a cinema day. The, um, the there were reports of, of similar incidents around the country. So this is not just isolated at, at the Lamo Fashion uh, Center, uh, but but they may be the the they may be the pioneer for others. All right. And do we know what role social media has played in those fights? Have investigators been able to sort of piece together what brought so many people at the same time to the mall? Uh, I, I have not read any reports of, of that. I think the, the the occurrence of multiple groups appearing at different uh, portions, diff- different areas of Delamo Mall in December 
so would suggest that they were uh, getting information through social media that they were responding to. It would make sense. I mean, particularly young people are on social media constantly anyway, and to be in the same location in those numbers. Frank and Pomona said, we used to get banned for playing sports, for vandalism and disruption. How, how much does or should the city of Torrance play a role in enforcing this? Frank, I, I don't think they would be responsible. This is this is private po- property. It's not like it's a public park. It's not like it's a public right-of-way. So I, I think uh, I would assume, Doug, that this really falls on the operator of the mall to enforce it um, the, the, that, you know, if they were going to use off-duty officers, something like that, they, they probably have to pay for that. I, I, I think so, yes. Of course, when when the situation gets out of control, the police respond, but mm-hmm. uh, they're, not, they're not necessarily there patrolling. All right. Doug, thank you so much for laying out what's involved here with Del Amo Fashion Center, taking this step of banning unaccompanied minors from their properties from 3 o'clock till closing on Friday and Saturday. Those under the age of 18 can still shop and hang out at the mall if they have a 21 or over parent or guardian who is with them and in the same physical presence as as the juvenile uh, during the course of their visit to Del Amo Fashion Center. This in response to uh, a number of violent incidents involving young people fighting among themselves. Ray in West L.A. said malls already seem to be dying with younger generations. This seems a surefire way to make that happen. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk with loaded, noted legal scholar, not loaded legal scholar. <laughs> we'll talk with noted legal scholar, Michael Gerhardt, author of The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. He's been a really big deal on impeachment law, appearing before Congress. Uh, He's been a consultant on previous impeachments. We'll talk with him about his new book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Back with him in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law, Michael Gerhardt, is the authority when it comes to impeachment. 
He's written now three books on the topic. He testified before the House Judiciary Committee, uh, testified for both sides in the 1998 impeachment of Bill Clinton. Uh, He addressed the full House of Representatives in uh, 1998 as well, in 2019. Uh, He uh, was involved um, with providing expertise with uh, the Trump um, uh, effort to oust him. In 2021, he was special counsel on Trump II and the uh, Senate, uh, Senate's presiding officer for that impeachment. And uh, he started writing on this topic going back to 1989. His new book is The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. Professor Michael Gerhard, very good to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your kind introduction. Let's uh, begin uh, because this is you know, right in the news now, and and that is the director of Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, impeached by the House of Representatives. Looks like the Senate is is very quickly uh, going to dispense with this, and he's not expected to be removed from office. But uh, this is the third time in five years senators being sworn in as jurors for an impeachment trial. Um, is this going to be the new normal, do you think, given our highly partisan environment? I hope not. I, I think one of the reasons why Secretary Mayorkas has been impeached and one of the reasons why I think there are people in the House, particularly the Speaker, pushing for the impeachment of Joe Biden is to uh, change Im- impeachment into a partisan weapon. I think they want to kind of recast it, transform it, um, perhaps lower um or diminish its seriousness. Um, But the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas, according to Senate Republicans themselves, is based on no evidence. Um, And that's not uh, an appropriate use of impeachment. So what what are the thresholds? Because you you write, and, and this is really what much of this book you've written is about, is sort of a lack of understanding of what are the thresholds which kick in um, the removal of a president and uh, the right to to impeach him or her. So what what are some of the the things that we get wrong when it comes to those thresholds? Well, the first um, thing is that there are specific constitutional safeguards uh, that are set forth for presidential impeachment trials. Um, and so I, I'm not sure that there's much awareness that the Constitution actually sets forth these requirements, but these requirements are set forth to ensure uh, a certain degree of fairness within the impeachment process. Uh, those requirements are that the Chief Justice of the United States preside, that senators be on oath or affirmation, and as is true with other uh, impeachment trials, uh, somebody is uh, subject to conviction and removal only if at least two-thirds of the Senate agree. So those specific rules uh, are in place, and there's nothing the Senate can do to change any of them. I think another thing that people are often confused about is what counts as an impeachable offense. Um, because the Constitution uses the words crimes and misdemeanors, it is not um, unusual for people to make the mistake of reading those words um, to mean what they mean today in 2024. Uh, Those words were in fact adopted um, within a certain context. The constitution says impeachable offenses are treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So other high crimes and misdemeanors within their context have to be of the same order of magnitude or harm as treason and bribery. 
In addition to that, the word high used at that time uh, of the Constitution's framing refers to injuring the state or the government. And crimes and misdemeanors were references to what the British had understood to be impeachable offenses. And uh, in the understanding of the era of the 1780s and 90s, high crimes and misdemeanors refer to what that generation understood as political crimes. Those are abuses of power for which there's no other remedy than something like impeachment. They're not remedied in a civil case or a criminal case. So I understand high crimes. This is something, this is an offense committed uh, against the state, an abuse of power, it sounds like. But what is what does misdemeanor mean in this historic context? Uh, in the historical context, misdemeanor are refers to actions that facilitate the commission of the high crimes. Um, so it may well be that abusing, for example, the pardon power is a high crime. Um, and then there may be actions taken by a president to uh, to do that. And so what misdemeanors accomplishes in that context is to ensure that all the activity that relates to the commission of that abuse of power are covered in the impeachment process. So let's talk about Watergate, for example. We can understand the idea of the high crime with former President Nixon, but you know, are there uh, misdemeanors that you would say were involved in the offenses of former President Nixon? There were acts that were certainly undertaken to, um, I guess, help him or um, make it easier for him to abuse his power. So the, the main charges against Richard Nixon were first that he had ordered the heads of the IRS, um, CIA and FBI to go after his political enemies. Um, second charge was that he um, obstructed justice. Um, and there are a lot of different acts that he took that helped him obstruct justice. You know, firing the special prosecutor, for example, um, perhaps um, uh, trying to fire other people. Also, um, Nixon was uh, Nixon un uh, undertook actions to conceal evidence um, and uh, and even destroy evidence. Uh, so those actions were all considered to be uh, intertwined with that abuse of power that he committed um, when he obstructed justice. The so those charge, might those might qualify there as misdemeanors, or are you saying um, technically? Okay, technically. But but they are impeachable by virtue of the language of the Constitution. We're talking uh, we're talking with Michael Gerhardt, who is distinguished professor of jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Uh, he focuses on constitutional conflicts between presidents and Congress. Noted authority on impeachment. His new book is "The Law of Presidential Impeachment: A Guide for the Engaged Citizen." If you have questions for him, we're at eight six six. 893-5722-866-893-5722. You can also email your question to atcomments at laist.com. Please include your location and first name. John in West Los Angeles asked, Professor, do you think the two impeachments of Donald Trump cheapened the impeachment process? My, my personal um, opinion about that is no. Um, the first impeachment of Donald Trump in 2019 was based on actions he had taken to ask the Ukrainian president for a favor uh, 
and the favor was to make an announcement of the opening of a criminal investigation into Joe Biden, just the announcement. There's no basis for it. Um, but that abuse of power in a president's attempt to sort of coerce another foreign leader to help him uh, is quite problematic. I think, generally speaking, we wouldn't want any president to do that. And the framers, incidentally, used an example almost exactly like that to characterize an impeachable offense. Um, the second impeachment of Donald Trump was based on his participation in uh, or encouragement of, of the riot uh, against Congress on January 6, 2021. Um, so what Trump said is largely on tape. Um, but we also know from other reports what Trump didn't do, even after having been asked. And so I think there's a real basis there um, for justifying um, um, incitement of insurrection as an impeachable offense. Um, certainly in the abstract, if you said, just apart from, let's say, any proof, oh, the president uh, incited an insurrection, I don't think there's any doubt at all that that's impeachable. I think the framers would have certainly agreed with that. And then the question just becomes, what's your proof? Well, and yeah, and then that, and you, you write, of course, this is a political process. And so how people see that issue of whether the former president did incite insurrection or not, you're going to have people whose political alignment is going to play into their determination of that. One of the things I think many of us struggle with is understanding this is a political process, but also we're citing activity which can also be prosecuted as criminal. When we come back, Professor, I'd like you to kind of guide us through that, because I, I think that this is a, it's still a little confusing. We're talking with Michael Gerhardt, uh, author of The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. He's professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Really interesting conversation for me, learning from law professor Michael Gerhardt. He's distinguished professor of jurisprudence at University of North Carolina School of Law, and he's an expert on the impeachment process. He's author of The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. So as I was saying before the, the break, professor, this is a political process. It doesn't rely on a president being charged with or found guilty of criminal offenses. But nonetheless, there is crossover into alleged criminal activity in many cases. So can you kind of thread the needle as to, you know, how because we hear about criminal offenses being incorporated into the charging that takes place in an impeachment effort? Well, it's a terrific question. Um, so I think there are two parts to the answer. Um, the first is to just maintain or understand a distinction between politics on the one hand and the Constitution on the other. So the Constitution, of course, establishes the federal impeachment process, but it vests the authority in, um, in that process to a political body, Congress. And what that has done, as you note, is that it allows members of Congress to take political considerations into account when they're rendering judgment in that constitutional process. So now we move to the second 
um, part of the answer. Um, the Constitution, um, again, provides that treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors um, are the scope of impeachable offenses. And what we've learned, both by studying history and over time, is that impeachment is um, a separate process from the criminal process. So the same misconduct could be the focus of both of those, but it could be framed or phrased differently in each of those processes. So there's overlap. Uh, there doesn't have to be overlap. Uh, in other words, you, it's possible to impeach somebody, convict and remove that person for something that is not an actual crime. If, for example, the president lied to the Senate to secure ratification of the, uh, a treaty, that's an abuse of power. It's an example that framers cited, but there's no actual crime involved there. However, obstruction of justice by the president is a serious felony, and that could be um, addressed in the criminal process, but it doesn't have to be, And that, but it also provides a basis for impeachment. So there, again, can be overlap, but they're not the same kinds of processes. Uh, in impeachment, the only sanctions are removal and disqualification, and in an impeachment trial, the only, uh, in impeachment, as I said, the only sanctions are removal and disqualification. In a criminal case, you can lose your life or your liberty. Uh, Andrew Johnson, the first American president to be impeached, you write that um, his defense team argued that for impeachment to rightfully take place, actual crimes had to be committed. So it's interesting that that argument was made in the in the first impeachment trial. Um, yes, I, I mean, so so that's the first impeachment trial of a president. Um, and and one of the things I think we've learned from the few impeachment trials of presidents that we've had is the president and his lawyers have an incentive to narrowly define the scope of impeachable offenses and to define it so narrowly as to exclude their misconduct. So Johnson had not been charged with a crime. Therefore, Johnson's lawyers argued, look, this process is only for crimes. That made it much easier for them to say Johnson shouldn't even be convicted because he didn't, he didn't commit a crime. Um, later, um, we'll see other presidents sort of narrowly define the scope of impeachable offenses um, in their own way in order to be able to exclude their misconduct. Um, but I think with Johnson, we also get a very important precedent established by the fact he's acquitted. And the acquittal of Johnson is widely understood as establishing the precedent that impeachment should not be used to address policy differences between one party and the president of another party. And that is what's, uh, I, I think, been a, well, that's what is, is at issue with Secretary Mayorkas. There are policy differences between Democrats and Republicans over immigration. And Republicans want to have a trial in the Senate, but the trial would be focused on Biden's immigration policy. It's a weird thing. A policy can't be impeached, convicted, and removed. But I think that's why we're seeing Secretary Mayorkas impeached. And I think that's also why Senate Democrats want to get rid of this very quickly because it's just going to turn into a sideshow. Well, and I've seen even some Senate Republicans who said, look, uh, Mayorkas is just just following the administration's policy on this. And, you know, we disagree with that policy, the Republicans say, but um, don't see, um, you know, uh, Mayorkas as, as the person responsible for that. Right. And, and, and elections have to be about something. 
and immigration policy will certainly be a subject in the next election. Uh, just real quickly, we're almost out of time. Can you give us like the 30-second version of what Bill Clinton's team argued in terms of his exposure to impeachment claims? Yes. So Bill Clinton had lied under oath. Um, he had committed perjury. So one charge was perjury, and the other charge was obstruction of justice. So the way Clinton tried to argue around both of those is to argue that the conduct that was involved with the perjury or obstruction was really personal. It wasn't serious enough to hurt the Republic. So remember that word high that describes crimes and misdemeanors? That means injuring the Republic. And so Clinton was basically arguing he might be liable for or guilty of a low crime, um, something that just pertains to his personal life and obviously pertain to his marriage, but it's not something that hurts the country in any way. Um, that was his argument. He was impeached in spite of that argument, but he was also acquitted later in the Senate. Professor Gerhardt, thank you so much for being with us and talking about your book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. I've enjoyed it. That's Professor Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina School of Law, where he's distinguished professor of jurisprudence. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. We got a jam-packed second hour coming your way shortly. I'll tell you all about it momentarily. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Just want to remind you with us just uh, less than a week away from Election Day in California, Super Tuesday nationally, that you can find information on so many of the different ballot measures, candidate races, about issues of concern for you and matching you with candidates who also make those particular issues their priorities. All of that is available by going to LAist.com slash vote, LA.com, I'm sorry, LAist.com slash vote. And that's where our voter game plan can be found. This time we've expanded it to Orange County as well. Terrific work that Jill Rep 
Logel has done, we invite you to see that. And with the election in mind, we're going to take the next few minutes to talk about a measure that Los Angeles City voters are considering. It's measure HLA. And HLA would require, if passed, that any time an eighth of a mile or more of a street is being repaved, that the city's already enacted mobility plan be applied to that portion of the street. So, for example, under the mobility plan, if you're going to do an eighth of a mile or more of repaving on a given street and that mobility plan ultimately calls for a crosswalk to be put in or a protected bikeway or a bus lane, the city would have to do that concurrently with the repaving of that stretch of street. So the question is... Is this a a long overdue necessary step in the city actually building out, implementing the mobility plan that it's already said it intends to do? Or is this such an expensive undertaking that it it would not truly be feasible for the city of Los Angeles to carry this out? $3.1 billion is what is the estimated cost, according to the city administrative office. Uh, Matt Zabo uh, had put out the the report saying that that's what the cost would be. Proponents of uh, HLA say that that is wildly overstated. Joining us is the founder and CEO of Streets for All, the nonprofit that has put HLA on the ballot, Michael Schneider. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So explain to us how HLA would sort of jumpstart the mobility plan being executed. Well, the mobility plan was passed by city council in 2015. Unfortunately, they've only implemented 5% of it in eight years. It is the least expensive way to implement it if you implement it while the city's repaving its streets. The city already repaves hundreds of miles of streets every year and putting in the mobility plan safety improvements at the same time would save money and make the changes happen a lot faster. Has the community that would be involved already given input on whether they want the bike lane or protected bus lane? Has that already gone through that kind of feedback process as a part of the passage in 2015 of the plan? Yeah, so there was a huge process by the city in 2015, engaging with communities and telling them about the mobility plan. In addition, the city would continue to do community engagement uh, while they were paving streets and implementing the mobility plan. It's not just ramming something down a community's throat. There would be an opportunity for dialogue, but most importantly, it would accelerate these safety improvements. 50% of the people that have been killed and injured in the streets since 2015 uh, were on mobility plan streets that did not have the mobility plan implemented yet. It was just planned. And if that if the plan had been implemented, we probably would have saved a lot of lives. Now, I was going to ask, what do we do? We know that the cited improvements, whether a bus lane or bike lane or protected bike path, additional crosswalks, um, is it really known whether those particular types of of um, of changes would have a direct effect on mortality? Those changes, when implemented in other places around the world, have had a huge positive impact. Um, and for example, in 2016, there was a study in comparing five street corridors in the Los Angeles area with safety configurations like this. There was a 32% reduction in crashes and 
50% reduction in injuries. So this is not some theoretical thing. This actually would save lives if the changes were in the ground. We're talking with Michael Schneider, the founder and CEO of Streets for All. It's the nonprofit advocacy group that put HLA on the Los Angeles city ballot. Also with us, the co-director of Keep LA Moving, one of the groups uh, that's against Measure HLA, Christopher Legras. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. So I've, one of the things I was curious about, are are you against the city's mobility plan overall or just about how the timeline for enacting this would be accelerated under HLA? We always say, Larry, we're not really against anything. And, and I always start from a place where I think we all agree. Everybody in L.A. wants safer streets, wants more prosperous streets, wants more sustainable streets. I think we're all on the same page there. So to answer your question directly, we oppose this particular manner of doing things. And, and there's a lot of data and a lot of experience that back up our concerns, as, of course, the, the LAFD union has come out uh, very vocally against. So, again, we're not against the idea in any way, shape, or form. We're against this one-size-fits-all, top-down mandate uh, that HLA really is. One of the concerns firefighters uh, union has expressed is about uh, the access of, of emergency vehicles. If you've got a single lane for traffic, there's not a place for cars necessarily to pull over to. But if you've got a bus lane, the ambulances could presumably, unless a bus is blocking it, um, be able to use uh, the bus lane. So, um, you know, how how legitimate do you think the concern really is about emergency vehicles? It's, it's, it is probably the single biggest concern. And, you know, the caveat is, is really the caveat that destroys the theory because there's really no such thing as a bus lane without a bus in it. And I don't know if we're expecting that when an ambulance needs to get through, that, that metro bus is suddenly going to be going 50, 60 miles an hour down the street to, to lead the ambulance. It's kind of a, a really absurd notion when you think about it. And again, we defer to the experts on this one, the, the first responders, and, and they'll tell you they've actually had experiences. And, and if you go to the Keep LA Moving website, we have many, many videos that our members have captured of this very concern coming through in real life. We've seen ambulances, we've seen police cars, we've seen fire engines, in some cases taking a minute or two to go a single block where a new road diet, like the ones that HLA would be installing by the thousands, takes them a minute or two a single block because when you start installing these obstacles and these new road designs that confuse everybody, by the way, they're confusing to motorists, they're confusing to cyclists, they're confusing to pedestrians, they're even confusing to the first responders because, Larry, in the vast majority, if not every single case, the first responders, the firefighters and paramedics, find out about these projects when they show up for a shift one morning and the street out in front of their station has been radically transformed. So we believe that there is a way to make LA streets safer, and this is precisely the wrong way to do it. And I'll add so one it's, more thing. I was just going to say, it sounds though like you're against the mobility plan network overall, because as I understand the mobility plan, just these kinds of so-called road diets are central to it. Road diets are central to the mobility plan, but gen more generally speaking, multimodal, that is, you know, non-vehicular transportation is, is a focus. And that certainly should be a focus. Look, I've lived in L.A. my entire life. 
um, LA and LA County. And since I was a child, trying to figure out ways to give Angelinos alternatives to their cars has been at the front of everybody's mind. So again, the, the, the goal is, is laudable and I think universal. To the extent the mobility plan relies on specifics like road diets, yeah, we have, we have real concerns about that. And right. again, okay. Uh, hold your thought. We're, we're talking with Christopher Legras, co-director of Keep L.A. Moving, Michael Schneider of uh, Streets for All. Your response first to the concerns about public safety and the difficulty with ambulances potentially using bike lane, I'm sorry, bus lanes with buses in those lanes. Well, I would encourage people to actually dig into the details of the city's own environmental impact report they did in 2015 that stated that the implementing the mobility plan would have no impact on emergency response, and in, it would likely speed up emergency response because emergency vehicles can not only use the bus, the bus lanes, they can use over a thousand miles of newly created center turn lanes, which is often a way that ambulances and fire trucks get through traffic right now. I will also point out that only about 5% of LAFD's calls are for actual fires. Many of their calls are responding to people that have been hurt and killed in our streets. We hear a lot from people saying this isn't the right way to do it. Well, what is the right way to do it? You have to respond when a pedestrian is injured every five hours and killed every two days. But it is a false choice to say we have to choose between good, efficient emergency response and safer streets. We can have both. And the plan's own environmental impact report states that the center turn lanes and bus lanes would be a boon and actually increase or decrease rather emergency response time. So why why is the first responder organizations against this? I think it's political to a degree. Um, I think they they have budget concerns, which are driven by a vastly inflated budget from the city administrative officer. Two thirds of the price tag that he assigns to this measure are for fixing sidewalks. There's a lot of pedestrian improvements in the plan. That's not required. And he puts bike lanes at $2 million per mile when our own Department of Transportation has a cost about a tenth of that. So I think they think that they might get a smaller share of their pie when they renegotiate their contract if this passes. It's simply not true. There's enough money through local return money to make our streets safer without impacting the general fund. I wanted to ask you about City Administrative Officer Matt Zabo's $3.1 billion price tag. At least that, he says, that doesn't even build in future increases in construction costs over the course of the next decade to to implement the plan. Uh, Your organization has taken issue with that. I can't remember a time when we've had a a governmental entity that's made... um, uh, an analysis of the cost of something, and it's come in for higher than what the actual cost was in it. But you're saying that's the case? You're saying this is too high? It's a scare tactic. It's political. Uh, out of the $3.1 billion he claims, which, by the way, is up from $2.5 billion, that's the number that got sent to voters, that is also nonsense. Two-thirds of it is to repair sidewalks that HLA would not require be repaired. The mobility plan doesn't mandate sidewalk repair. That's two-thirds of his cost right there. The other one-third is for bike lanes at $2 million per mile, which is about 10 times the cost that the Department of Transportation says they would cost, and 10 times the cost that uh, LADOT has come in at for recent projects. Even council members at council a week and a half ago, when Zabo presented his report, st- stood up and said, this doesn't sound quite right. quite right. This is way higher than the recent project in my district, or this is way higher 
than that project. It, unfortunately, he's just totally politicized the numbers. Uh, Robert in Sherman Oak says uh, he questions making the threshold for requiring the um, the plan to be implemented at an eighth of a mile. He said that's that's barely a city block. Uh, why not do it for a longer stretch? Uh, Michael Schneider, quick response to that. We put in the eighth of a mile to make sure that the city actually implements the plan, but we looked at the number of repaving projects. Most of the city's repaving is dramatically more than an eighth of a mile. Our intent is not to just do improvements an eighth of a mile here, an eighth of a mile there. What I think will happen is the city will likely focus on longer stretches of major arterial streets versus just doing little chunks here and there. All right, let me go back to Christopher Legras, co-director of Keep LA Moving. They're against Measure HLA on Los Angeles city ballots. Christopher, your your response to, uh, to uh, the claim that the CAO's $3.1 billion estimate is inflated. Well, as, as a threshold matter, I, I would... I find it incredibly presumptuous to suggest that our first responders whose careers involve saving lives are more interested in their budget than in saving lives, and that this is somehow political. If this was political, UFLAC and the firefighters would have been involved with this months, if not years ago. They got involved recently when they learned about this. So the notion that the people we entrust to save our lives are more concerned about their budget than saving our lives, that's quite a thing to say. In terms of the CAO's budget estimate, We know that the road diet, the infamous road diet on Venice Boulevard, which was implemented in 2017, it's eight-tenths of a mile, and it cost about $2 million. And again, that was six years ago. So these projects get more expensive over time. You will, by mandating one-eighth of a mile at a time, you will put incredible stresses on things like supplies, on things like manpower, on things like planning and engineering. Because, you know, we don't just paint streets. They are engineered. They are, and there's a, there is a whole process that goes back a century that dictates how we design and engineer our streets. So it's not nearly as simple as Mr. Schneider makes it out to be. And actually, one of the problems with the way the mobility plan has been implemented is it has been rather willy-nilly. And we know for a fact, and this is really a major point, I hope listeners really, really take this to heart, Not a single road diet, not a single traffic project under the mobility plan has been reviewed, analyzed, and approved by LAFD. That is actually a state, county, and city fire code requirement. All three levels of law require that LAFD inspect and, in writing, approve every single one of these projects. So, again, there's another cost center. LAFD will have to go out, spend human resources that should be focused on the job, to evaluate these thousands of new projects and approve them. And we know through public records requests and through discussions with high-level officials but not a single project in L.A. in the last nine years. And we've already been doing this for nine years. Okay. Not Uh, a single one has gotten that approval. All right. I need to to wrap up. Uh, Michael Schneider, quick closing comment, please. Yeah, well, I just want to say what he just said is completely false. Uh, Firefighters, first of all, were consulted with and signed off on the original mobility plan document. The mobility plan states that firefighters and uh, police will be consulted. And, um, you know, th- this idea that firefighters are just learning about this, I mean, it's, it's simply not true. Every single time LADOT does a project, they are at the table and the city makes accommodations for any of their needs, including on Venice Boulevard, equipping them with transponders that make sure they get green lights all the way. 
So this idea that fire is not at the table, this is a total shock, and they're never at the table and they're ignored is simply false. Mike, I want to ask you quickly, in, in Culver City along Washington Boulevard, traffic backs up terribly there where they took a lane for cars away and have a dedicated bus lane there and protected bicycle area. And and my understanding is, I, I, I've not talked with the city about it, but I've been told by multiple people the city is going to take the protected um, uh bike way out of there. There'll still be a bike lane, but it'll be shared use. And uh, I just wonder, you know, there are people who are concerned with these road diet things that it can end up like Washington Boulevard in Culver City. What would you say to people concerned about that outcome? Well, from a first responder point of view, we have many videos of emergency vehicles using those bus lanes. So those have actually been great for emergency response. It It has also made it a lot safer for cyclists. Look, every street is unique. Um, There is flexibility built into not only HLA, but the mobility plan itself. And um, these are conversations we can have. But from an emergency response point of view, that project you just mentioned has been fantastic to emergency response to bypass that traffic and use a bus lane to get to where they need to go. I want to thank you both. Michael Schneider, founder and CEO of Streets for All, which got uh, on the ballot for this current election. HLA, the measure Los Angeles City voters will be deciding. And Christopher Legras, co-director of Keep LA Moving. That's one of the groups in opposition. Russell in Silverlake says, I get around LA on foot and bike. I support this measure. It'll make traffic move easier and faster. Uh, Gina and Marina Del Rey said, I find very often bike lanes suddenly end in critical places and then continue a mile ahead. The danger for a cyclist willing to continue their trip uh, involves risking uh, our lives. An example is Lincoln Boulevard along the Bayona Creek Covers Boulevard intersection. Thank you so much. We appreciate your feedback on it. Again, L.A. Mayor H, uh, Measure HLA to be decided by uh, L.A. City residents uh, in the current election. Coming up, we'll talk about a change for our website where you find all the AirTalk information. That's coming up in just a minute. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up, we're going to be talking about therapy later in life. Not surprising that people who've been in therapy off and on throughout their life might still well uh, be talking to a therapist when they're older. But what about people who've never been in therapy at all, taking it up uh, when they're in their 60s, 70s, or 80s? We'll be talking about that coming up in just a few minutes. But For many years now, you've been able to go to kpcc.org and to find information about AirTalk, archived shows and our segments, all the information that's there. Well, that's going to change effective tomorrow. But don't worry, all that information is still going to be available and it'll be better. Joining us to talk about the change is Vice President of Digital Product at LAist, Andy Cheatwood. Andy, good morning. Hi, Larry. It's good to be here. So what happens at midnight tonight? Well, it's going to be 
be a little before midnight, but oh, okay. uh, later this evening. Um, we're basically going to deactivate um, kpcc.org and redirect everything that was on kpcc.org over to Elias. I'm so, dying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you've got bookmarks or for AirTalk or for any of the, the, the pages on KPCC, um, those those should still work and they'll they'll take you over. Um, but the really the reason we're doing it is, you know, two websites, you know, it doesn't really make sense anymore now that we're LAist um, fully because, you know, a couple of years ago we were still KPCC and LAist. Um, and, you know, a lot more of our traffic and a lot more of our news is is being housed on LAist these days. And so we really just want to kind of keep everything, you know, in one place, um, including the broadcast stuff and the, and the digital stuff. It's very exciting because, yeah, it's been yeah. a little confusing for people. Once we rebranded 89.3 as LAist 89.3, so to now put this all together, so how easy will it be for AirTalk listeners to navigate to find episodes that they want? Yeah, it'll be super easy. It'll actually be easier in a lot of ways. Great, um, we've great. redesigned the, the the pages. We made them a lot more user friendly. Um, and when AirTalk is on the air, you know, you'll be front and center on the homepage of las.com. So you'll be able to like, you know, immediately tune into the live stream or go straight to the to the page itself and, you know, go through the archives and and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think the other cool thing is that we'll be able to give people more opportunities to, you know, give you feedback um, during the shows, um, either through the website or even the LAist app um, so that people can like write in their comments and and um, and do it that way if they're not where if they don't really want to call in or, or be on the air. So um, we're, we've got a lot of fun things um, in, in place for that. Yeah. And, and we welcome your feedback. Once you start using it, please let us know ways that we yeah. could make it even more useful for you, because uh, Andy and his team always interested in that feedback and and trying to see what we can do to incorporate absolutely we interest. anytime someone writes in or calls us you know mm-hmm. we we you know kind of uh help them out and figure out you know what's going on what what the problem is you know and um and yeah we love hearing from from, from our there's also students. a chance for you to see our air talk team the tremendous producers and engineer yeah. and all the folks there so we've got that information at las.com as well yes all the people who make this show um and film week um on fridays uh, we've, we've got everybody uh, right there, their bios, so you can see what they look like and, um, yeah, and, and, and learn more about them. And then, uh, Andy, with the combination LAS.com site, how is what we do on AirTalk sort of going to um, uh, dovetail with other coverage by reporters yep. and, and all the other news that you see on the website? Yeah, so it's all in the same place. So that if you're talking to one of our reporters here on the show, you know, we'll have their stories front and center on the website. Um, you can go to, and you can also read their, their previous stories, anything like that. So everything's going to be a lot easier to find, and it's all going to be in one place um, so that, you know, you know, we constantly say go to LAS.com, but yet, you know, people come to kpcc.org to tune in and find AirTalk information. Now it's all in one place, and we'll make it a lot easier for you to get to it. This is this is going to be great, and this really speaks to the larger issue of, well, why, why did we rebrand as LAS yep. 89.3? Because the reason is to bring all of our coverage under one organization, and you get it on multi-platforms. There's LAS Studios for podcasts, LAS.com for all the digital news and information that we offer, and of course, LAS 89.3. But everything yeah. now, starting later today, consolidated in one place. I, yeah. I've been looking forward to this day, Ed. No, me too. <laughs> My team has been working really hard for about six months. And you know, it's really it's a really hard process because not only are we bringing over AirTalk, we're bringing over over almost 200,000 
old archive stories from the like the last decade um, on KPCC because that used to be where we held housed all our news. So we don't want to get rid of anything, right? We want to make it still accessible. But a lot of that has been just moving all of that stuff over. So that's been a kind of a big job behind the scenes that we've been trying to do just so that everything um, is still preserved. Years, but, years worth of, yeah. of content. Yeah, it's a lot of content. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks thank to you. your team as well, because you guys work so hard and we appreciate all your expertise and dedication that you bring to this work. Absolutely. And we love your listeners and, and we're not going anywhere. So th- this is just a small change. And I think everyone will be really happy with it. So I, thank I you. I think so. Thank you, Andy. Andy Cheatwood, Vice President of Digital Product at LAist. Again, uh, what has been our historic kpcc.org site goes defunct later today. All of the content, all of the information will be at laist.com starting in just a few hours. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3 coming up. Therapy for older Southern Californians. We'll talk about that when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. You might know the expression, as we age, we stay the same person, just more so, uh, which implies that maybe we become even more rooted in the sorts of personalities, the quirks, the interests, uh, just get magnified as we get older. And that might give the impression that change is hard, if not impossible, once we get into later years. But in fact, people do change and can make considerable changes even in their later years, including benefiting from therapy. Joining us to talk about what role psychotherapy can have later in someone's life is Dr. Daniel Plotkin, geriatric psychiatrist and clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. Dr. Plotkin, so good to have you with us today. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me on your show. So let's talk, first of all, about that sort of sense that we have of older people, that they just become more ingrained in who they are, in their habits, in in their idiosyncrasies. How much of that is true? Well, it's a good question. I think we don't really know because uh, it's been difficult to uh, study older adults. It's a relatively new field, the field of uh, geriatrics and older adults in clinical medicine. So we don't know all the answers that we'd like to know. And we have identified pretty clearly that um, negative attitudes about older adults are are usually um, 
the the obstacle to uh, finding out more information and and for older adults to have opportunities to change and grow. It's usually the attitudes, and and these are negative attitudes that we we call ageism, and uh, they're usually held by. Um, older adults themselves, as well as uh, professionals, and, and pretty much everyone who's raised in our, um, you know, in our Western culture, youth-oriented culture. How much of this do you think is sort of people excusing themselves later in life, like, I'm too old to change, meaning they don't really want to put the work in and don't want to do it, versus they really believe it is impossible to change? Yeah, I, I think it's mostly that people believe it's not possible to change, and so it doesn't really uh, come into their view, and, and they they don't really think it's possible. I think we've all been brainwashed to some extent, but if you if you can clear away the fog of ageism, then it becomes fairly clear that some of the changes that occur with normal aging. Um, make older adults uh, very suitable, uh, very ripe, and good candidates for change in general and for um, benefiting from psychotherapy specifically. What, what are those changes? I mean, you're talking about like changing in living circumstances or uh, grief from loss of friends. I mean, are, are those sorts of occasions for reexamination and growth? Th- those are occasions for uh, growth and, and as, you know, m- People know, and, and writers and, and poets and musicians know, that loss is often associated with some kind of personal growth, emotional growth. Um, but a- actually, when you look at the uh, key factors in terms of psychotherapy, talking therapy, and it's not that we know uh, precisely what works best for whom, but we do know there are three important characteristics uh, in terms of uh, therapy, and one is just uh, motivation, the person having some motivation to change. And the other one is the ability of the person to reflect and be able to gain insight. Um, so, you know, those those are keys, the, the motivation to be able to reflect. And then the third one is relationship, be able to work in a relationship, uh, so-called therapeutic relationship. And um, of course, older adults have honed their relationship skills over decades and are usually uh, more uh, oriented towards people and relationships rather than, um, you know, money and uh, ego and uh, career and that sort of thing. And the reflection, often there's more time when people get older. Uh, maybe they're a little more secure in the work that they're doing. It's perhaps not as demanding as when they were younger and and mastering the profession they're in, or they're retired and have time to really uh, think about some of the things that are important to them and to reprioritize what they want to do to to move themselves forward. Very good points and absolutely true. And uh, yes, so these important resources such as time uh, and the older adults generally having more time and not being on that uh, treadmill that they may have been on earlier in life. I'd love to hear from listeners. If you started therapy later in your life, what what got you into therapy? What change in your life or or what particular thoughts led you to get into it? And what did you find once you started therapy later in your life? I'm also curious if you grew up in a generation where therapy was stigmatized, 
where it meant there had to be something severely wrong with you if you were going to be involved in talk therapy, how you got over that stereotype. Now, I'm I'm 65, and, and you know, I was in college in the 70s when therapy was being largely destigmatized, so therapy is much more talked about. I, I come from a, as a later boomer where uh, at least in 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 sort of my culture, there was not that sort of stigma around therapy, and and it just seemed like a high percentage of people I knew who, if they had the means for it, they were in therapy at least from time to time. But I'm interested if you grew up in in a period or a part of the country where therapy was not considered to be a typical thing. We're at eight six six eight nine three. 5722-866-893-5722, or you can email us about your experiences later in life with starting therapy at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I, I wonder, uh, Daniel, if uh, a lot of the people later in life who were getting into therapy are doing it at the suggestion maybe from their kids or from physicians concerned maybe about depression or or grieving that's going been going on for a particularly long period of time and 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 the person is stuck what what are some of the most common ways older people start therapy uh yes larry those those are right on uh observations that uh, oftentimes it's not the uh the older person uh himself or herself that seeks therapy. It's it's the adult child or uh, spouse, or uh, a physician like a primary care physician, and uh, oftentimes that's that's the first hurdle is uh, trying to help the person realize that there there may be help available. But um, it's this this current generation of of the uh, oldest adults these days. They're older than the baby boomers, and they kind of grew up in that uh, generation of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and uh, and uh, it feels it, does, it feels like a sign of weakness to be in therapy for some of them. So what we know for sure is that uh, psychotherapy is underutilized uh, treatment intervention with older adults. But I think, as you point out, we're we're seeing some changes with the baby boomers. And that's good to see. And I know there are cultural differences too, um, and economic differences that come into play. So if if you you know grew up in a in a culture or in an economic strata where, again, therapy is just sort of not not talked about and not thought of as an accepted, you know, that's for, quote, crazy people or whatever the, whatever the um, definition was given for people who were in therapy. And, and so are there advances being made in, in trying to talk with people who come from that environment who might even have unconscious sorts of negative feelings about therapy? Yes, I think that's a good point about bringing in the idea unconscious is most of us have kind of a mix of conscious and unconscious, uh, you know, fears and um, and bias uh, about aging and this applies to therapy. But uh, you're right, there are uh, cultural aspects and socioeconomic aspects, and, and those are important. Um, so in terms of... Uh, bringing together people, older adults who may benefit from therapy and therapists, uh, w- what's become clear is that uh, with the demographics being what they are, uh, the, the very compelling aging of our society, there are not enough uh, 
you know, trained professionals who have experience and or training in geriatrics. And so we're starting to look at some uh, innovative models of how to expand uh, the workforce. And um, we could get into that. Maybe it, that could probably take up a whole, a whole show in the future. Some really interesting stuff is going on. I'd love to hear our listener thoughts on this. If you're someone who started therapy later in life, and maybe you could have even benefited from it when you were younger, but there were barriers in the way, uh, financial barriers or or uh, stigma that therapy carried in your mind, but you started later, what changed? What was the precipitator to help you get over that uh, barrier that you might have had toward feeling okay about going to therapy? We're at 866. 8935722 that's 8668935722 Kayla in Mid City Los Angeles good to have you with us what's your experience Hi uh yeah I my experience is that I grew up uh in the south in Texas and therapy was very looked down upon in in my family and it was kind of the buckle up and also don't tell other people your business and it wasn't until much later in life when I lost a parent and things like that, when I needed some additional mental health help, um, that I started doing it, uh, started going to it. But the first thought, the first thing I had to do was kind of get over the shame that I wasn't tough enough to handle it myself. And um, that was something that was really inbred. And so I now have relatives that are in their 80s who still absolutely think it's all um, just throwing your money out the window. You should buckle up. You should bear and grin it. And it, it is really difficult because those same people, I feel like, really could use a dose of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, you know, whether it's short-term cognitive, I don't think anyone's going to be doing deep analysis at this point in their lives um, at that age. But uh, And I, I am married to a person I love very much who also won't do therapy, and he's also in his 50s. And it, and I'm in my 50s. And it's one of those things where I'm like, you could really benefit from just trying it. Mm. Uh, but it's really hard to get that across. Kayla, a terrific call. I so appreciate you sharing this. Uh, Dan, what, what advice would you have for her in either talking with the older 80-something family members or her husband? Yeah, uh, Kayla, thanks for your call. And um, so uh, that's just what we were talking about, how difficult it is. And I think uh, you, if you have a good relationship with uh, one of these older family members, I think that's the key, that you can kind of leverage your relationship and just instead of trying to persuade them about uh, the benefits of therapy, talk more from a first-person perspective about how much you care and love them and see that they're suffering in some way and would like to get them some help. And that usually goes better rather than trying to uh, persuade them with a more intellectual argument. I might also add that, uh, Kayla, as you said, uh, older adults are not going to be doing any deep analysis. It's Actually, I don't think that's true. I think uh, some older adults can benefit from uh, uh, what we call psychoanalysis. Most, most people are not going to have psychoanalysis at any age. But I do want to say I have actually uh, conducted a, a successful psychoanalysis with an older adult. And uh, so for some people, that's just, just uh, you know, the right match. Well, and, and share, so for someone who's older and going through that, 
and having revelations about earlier events in their life and influences and things that have affected them that were not necessarily conscious that now are coming to the fore through talk therapy. What's it like for the person later in life to make those discoveries? Uh, great question. It's, it's usually uh, some, somewhat exhilarating. It's, it's exciting for people to uh, be able to uh, connect the dots in ways they have not previously done. It's, uh, and it's actually uh, very consistent with a normal tendency in older age to look back at one's life and to review. And I, I, you know, I think we're, some of us are familiar with Eric Erickson, the pioneering psychologist who, who uh, demonstrated that uh, psychological development continues after childhood and adolescence, and, and people in old age are, are grappling with with issues such as uh, the last one that he described, was he called integrity versus despair, a kind of a dialectic about people looking back and being able to uh, connect the dots in their lives and think about in- integrity in the sense of integration of their life, uh, like a, a coherent life uh, versus um, feeling uh, just uh, bitter and despair that they uh, just blew opportunities um, as opposed to normal regret that usually goes Mm. uh, with aging. We're talking with a geriatric psychiatrist and clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA, Dr. Daniel Plotkin. Dee in San Pedro emailed us, My husband and I are immigrants from Asia and Europe, respectively. Therapy still seems to be stigmatized. It's hard to overcome this hurdle of starting therapy. It's harder to even share this with family back in our countries of origin. Dee, thank you. We appreciate that. And Hillary emailed, I'd like to hear uh, more about... how to help those of us in our 70s who are still working. We may not have the time or money to easily find opportunities for psychotherapy. If we receive therapy through our employment, could that be used against us? We'll get an answer to your question, Hillary, when we come back with Dr. Daniel Plotkin joining us on Air Talk. We'll also take a call from Don in Playa del Rey. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Dr. Daniel Plotkin, geriatric psychiatrist and clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. We just had an excellent email from Hillary, who uh, is still working in her 70s. She said, you know, she can't afford to stop working at this point. So there's the issue of time and of money. And she also asked, well, if she if she uh, goes to therapy through what's provided by her work, could that be used against her? Uh, good, good questions. I my understanding is that uh, it cannot be used against her, and and that's that's I believe consistent with the uh, the law. But I I realize that even though it uh, maybe formally cannot be used against her, that maybe there would be uh, people who would have judgments who who you know would be uh, colleagues in her work environment, so that it's not necessarily an easy situation. But yes, there are, there are just so many barriers um, to um, uh, connecting people who might benefit from therapy that uh, beyond the, the biggest one, which I think, again, is the ageism one, but there's also these barriers of, of people still needing to work, not having time um, to, to connect with someone, and, and sometimes through uh, 
the work environment, there are opportunities uh, through human resources. Uh, so sometimes that's a, a good way to access care. Let's talk with Don and Playa Del Rey. Don, good to have you with us on Air Talk. Oh, thank you, Larry and Doctor. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really grateful. Uh, seven, six, seven years ago or more, uh, uh, to be able to see a therapist. Then uh, my son went through a, a, a very bad di- divorce, and uh, from the very beginning, uh, he needed me for needed family support. He was out in Las Vegas. I had to drop everything and fly out there. Sometimes I was with him for two or three weeks and sometimes just a week or just a few days. But this was to babysit his two kids. He didn't really have help then, and he was working full time. And uh, I went to a therapist uh, to to keep my head on straight uh, because I would get a call, you know, every week or every couple of weeks, uh, you know, every other week. uh, Hey, I need you to come out today or come out tomorrow. I have to get on a plane and go. Uh, just just so he could keep his job and yeah. uh, you know maintain his life and uh, it was I was very lucky my health plan provided that and uh, it it he that that therapist helped me get through it for a year and a half uh, and I and I see some uh, I see some other problem in my life I'd want to go back and talk to a therapist about that I I think it's wonderful to be able to have someone to talk to and to uh, be honest with and. It helps get your life straightened out. It helps get your thinking straightened out. Don, I so appreciate your call. And you're also pointing to something that, and maybe this was true in earlier generations, but I think it's particularly prevalent with with baby boomers, and you're part of that generation, of of later in life yeah. taking on additional responsibilities like child care for, for grandkids, um, working later in life than other generations of lurk that just, you know, you, you you turn 65 or 70 doesn't mean, you know, you're you're going to a retirement community and twiddling your thumbs. Dan? Uh, yeah, good Good, good points. So good, good for you, Don, for for uh, just just uh, being able to take advantage of, of therapeutic opportunities and and for really stepping up and helping out your son. Of course, um, I, I think you know what we're finding is, and this gets back to this quality that I was calling motivation. Older adults are you know very motivated because they they know uh, you know they're more uh, connected to their own um, mortality and finiteness so they kind of have a sense of now or never but at the same time uh, just as as uh, Larry was saying people realize that there's there's still a lot left in life I mean people who are 65 or 70 these days know that they have a, a decade or, or perhaps two of life uh, left to live, and it's important to have a good quality of life. So people are thinking, well, um, is 65 or 70, I still have a lot of life to live. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make the most of it. Yeah, and, and Don, it's great because being put in this uh, very stressful circumstance of trying to be emotionally supportive to his son going through a traumatic experience while also being a, a, a child care provider, um, very, very difficult. Uh, Omri and Beverly Hills. Omri, we're tight on time, but please quickly share your experience. Hi, Larry. Yeah, thank you. So my parents are from the Middle East, and where they're from, it's, there's a very big stigma. There was always a big stigma uh, growing up about about uh, mental health and, and going to see a therapist. So now that all of their kids are older, now we're all out of the house, uh, my parents kind of use us as an impromptu therapist uh, rather than to actually seek professional help. 
And, uh, you know, it might, it might get the job done, but it's not healthy for anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's not that's a burden on you, an emotional burden. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, Omri, uh, bring, bring up, you bring up uh, some, some good points. And, and, of course, there is still uh, stigma and, and lots of barriers, um, in, particularly in other cultures. And when the family uh, f- finds himself in this situation, um, the, again, the best thing is uh, to kind of leverage your, your, your good feelings and your good relationship uh, with your parent and just uh, tell them that you've observed uh, that they're suffering in some way, and you realize that you're, you know, you're not, you're a family member, you're not a trained professional, and that way you might be able to make a suggestion that they get some help. Omri, appreciate it very much. Dr. Plotkin, what do you think about offering to go with the family member? If you have an older family member who's in distress, could be anything from depression or anxiety, intense grief, um, um, lashing out at people, things that sometimes happen as people age, is it useful to say, you know, I think you could benefit by talking with someone, and I'd be willing to go with you to start it out? Is, is that ever worthwhile? It's a very, very worthwhile, very, very good idea. And in, indeed, I incorporate it in my practice because it comes up a lot. And I, I will often say to the per- person on the initial consultation, you know, to come with your adult, you know, daughter, who's the one suggesting this. Uh, and what I do is I bring them into uh, my office and then I say to them in the first few minutes, let's spend a couple minutes just, just uh, you know, talking about the, the uh, overarching points of being here today. And then I'd, I'm going to want to spend time with each of you separately. And then we'll come back together again. And 99% of the time, that works really well. Dr. Plotkin, thank you so much for being with us. Great topic of great importance. And we've had terrific listener contributions. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Larry. From UCLA, clinical professor of psychiatry is a geriatric psychiatrist, Dr. Daniel Plotkin, joining us on Air Talk. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now comes up next, and I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9 for the next Air Talk. I do want to remind you we're now just days away from the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater at downtown Los Angeles. Please join me and our critics. We do have some tickets left at laus.com slash event. We look forward to seeing you this Sunday afternoon. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.